Hi, you're listening to iiPod, the official podcast of the Duke Lemur Center in Durham, North Carolina. I'm Matt Boards, curator of fossils at the Duke Lemur Center. And I'm Megan McGrath, education programs manager at the Duke Lemur Center. Hi, Megan. Hi, Matt. Today, we are going to talk with two of our colleagues here at the Duke Lemur Center who work directly with the IIs. They not only deal with the husbandry of the animals, which means the day-to-day care, but also a very special aspect of their life here, known as training. When we talk about why we train the lemurs, we have two main categories, primary reasons and secondary reasons. Primary reasons include anything that most directly benefits the lemurs, so things like training a lemur to hop on a scale to make weight checks stress-free. Secondary reasons include things that are helpful to our research program, like training a lemur to touch a shape on a computer screen so we can learn about their cognitive skills. Still great enrichment for the lemurs either way, just a slightly different motivation behind the training. As you will learn from these experts, this enriches the lemurs' lives and enables us to learn as much as we can while making sure the lemurs, in this case the IIs, are happy. So, let's get started. Hey, I'm Jenna Browning. I am a primate technician at the Duke Lemur Center. I've been working here for almost four years now. Essentially, I'm a zookeeper for just lemurs at the Lemur Center. I do the daily husbandry, cleaning, monitoring their health, administering medications, training. Hi, I'm Meg Dye. I am the Curator of Behavioral Management and Welfare at the Duke Lemur Center. I am involved in all aspects of our welfare program, and it's kind of multidimensional, where we focus heavily on using positive reinforcement training for um, teaching our animals to cooperate in their own health care, or for us, non-invasive research, where we're looking to elicit natural behaviors. Um, and then also from the welfare aspect, looks at how those two aspects mesh together and how do we quantify the welfare of our animals? How do we assure that we are um, providing opportunities that create positive effect or positive emotions in our animals as much as we can? The training program is foundational at the Duke Lemur Center and impacts every part of the program. We're providing enriching opportunities, providing um, challenges, getting them thinking, learning new things. And, you know, they're not so very different than us. We all like to have challenges. We like to learn new things. We like to have social interactions. And it's our responsibility with the lemurs here to provide as much of that as possible. Beyond the training itself, it enables the humans to have a relationship with the lemurs and vice versa. We truly have a way of setting up a form of communication with these animals to ask them to participate in it. By doing that, that allows us to train our animals to voluntarily participate in their own health care. So we have an excellent veterinarian health care program here, but it's even better when the animals participate in it for us. So we can ask, will you please enter this kennel or will you please go on this scale? And to them, it's a game and they do it and they get reinforced and it just makes it so easy for everybody. Um, And it's also true for our non-invasive research. For example, a research study on metabolism required an animal at the DLC to move from one place to another. The team worked with the lemur, offering reinforcement, also known as treats, for going where she needed to go, so she did exactly what was needed, stress-free. But she had control of the situation. She had control of saying whether I am or I'm not going to participate. And that's the value in training for our animals. Meg learned about the value of training from the beginning of her college years. Um, I went to college at University of Santa Cruz out in California. Go banana slugs. We had a facility very similar to the lemur center, except it was all marine mammals. Um, and I would come down as a volunteer. I was learning the husbandry. I was doing the cleaning and whatnot. And that's really where I was first exposed to training because they were asking their animals in a non-invasive research manner 
to can you do this or can you do that? And to me, that was kind of this aha moment. When I graduated college, I actually moved to Chicago and helped open up the Shedd Aquarium's Oceanarium. I worked with Pacific white-sided dolphins, blue whales, sea otters, sea lions, and sea otters, and then left to open up my own consulting business. Meg started working with different zoos, going beyond marine mammals, focusing on positive reinforcement training. She started working with the Lemur Center. So I consulted for about five years and then was offered a full-time position closed down my company and have stayed here because I love it so much. In all of your experience working with different animals, is there such a thing that you've worked out for how happy animals are? It's a great question. And it's that you're asking it at a time when it's very acceptable from a research point of view now to talk about emotions with animals and to talk about a happy animal. I can tell you that when I started eons ago, um, it really wasn't accepted because how do you quantify happy? It's such a subjective measurement. Um, and welfare as a whole, um, the history of welfare, of course, has always looked at what we don't want to do. What are the negative things? Um, and those are very um, overt and easy to see. It's the positive effect, the positive emotions, happy, for example, that are internalized and are harder to see. So, Jenna, since you work with them every day, what's a happy eye look like? Um, they're moving freely around the room. Um, in a relaxed manner, and they're not showing any signs of extra activity. They're not pacing and things like that. They're engaged in MLD nesting and things like that. So just being engaged in their environment or being relaxed on a branch, and they're not just extra busy around the room. Some researchers looking at the relative size of the I.I.'s brain say that they are the most intelligent of the lemurs. And in working with them, Meg agrees because... The way that they manipulate their environment and what we're learning, what to do with them in training, I think um, it's amazing. because We've used the I.I.'s in non-invasive research, um, so it's pretty cool. And while it is pretty cool to see how the I.I. learns, Meg has a holistic view when it comes to the question of which species is smartest. I often was asked this question when I work with dolphins, with marine mammals, like, well, isn't every dolphin just so smart compared to all the other animals and mammals? Um, and our response was usually, you know what, every animal is as smart as they need to, to be to survive in the wild and in their environment. Um, and a dolphin is definitely very different than a lemur. Um, there are similarities, though, and I will say you can take... 12 dolphins and you can take 12 lemurs and you're going to have a smarty pants in either one that's going to be that foddy. One of the IIs at the DLC that we'll be talking about. Um, or another animal who's going to pick up on the training really fast and you're going to have another individual who just needs a little bit more hand-holding and really kind of a different teaching plan. And so the thing that's similar across the board is the personalities is that you just have different personalities in the animals um, and in the different individuals. And um, there's definitely differences, of course, in what they can and can't do based on their physical capabilities. But to me, that's probably the biggest similarity, but yet difference at the same time is the personalities of the animals. Given these personalities, Jenna says that she takes it slow, especially in getting an I.I. ready for tactile or touch training. So it usually starts with a small touch or a touch with a target stick or something other than your hand, um, just very brief and see what their reaction is. And they will be rewarded if, you know, if it happens and they don't have any reaction, then we'll just build duration. Um, and then after we build duration in one spot, then I'll continue touching in, our, in other areas near that area and just keep reinforcing her and just watching her behavior 
to see if she's relaxed. If I touch her and she's going to leave, then we're going to have to backtrack and be like, that's not okay. So that might be something that she's not willing to do. Then we'll start training something else. It takes quite um, a lot of trust and a lot of time. And so Jenna explained it perfectly as far as just those little steps. Um, and what makes a trainer so good is really understanding the animal's body language. And it can be the most subtle change in their body language. But when you have someone such as Jenna who is um, knows that animal so well, and this is true with primary techs here, um, they know their animals so well that you can get just, it can be, even be a look in the animal's eye and you know when to step back a little bit. Complicating this careful observation of these animals is the fact that eye eyes are nocturnal and typically only awake when it's dark out. We get around this by flipping day and night inside the nocturnal housing. So red lights that don't disrupt anyone's night vision are used during our daylight hours. And then during our nighttime hours outside, bright white lights turn on in the nocturnal housing. That ensures the IIs are awake when staff are there to take care of them. So we're working in very dim red light. And we can bring headlamps that has red light capabilities to be able to see better in there. But you don't have the same amount of light as you would. With diurnal lemurs, who are naturally awake in the daytime. So when working with IIs, you have to make sure you choose the time of day carefully. Occasionally you'll get the night owl version of an II that'll peer out while their day right. lights are on, but they're not at their sharpest or brightest or most cooperative. And it makes you even more impressive, I want to point out, because all those subtle shifts in behavior that Meg was just talking about, you're noticing those when you can't really see all that well. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Again, the unique nature of IIs means customizing their training. They eat differently than other lemurs, they have these large brains, they use their bodies differently to forage and climb. So many things set IIs apart from other lemurs. Um, when we started working with IIs, it was a challenge because they are so unique, their behavior is so unique. And one of the things we had the hardest time with at first was how do you reinforce them? Because we were so used to feeding the other animals, these guys just their hands are different. They're different. Um, and so what we actually ended up doing in the early days was we made um, peanut butter water on a spoon and we would hold it up to the animal so they could use their long finger. Um, and we had to hold that spoon tight so they wouldn't take the spoon from us. But that's actually the early days how we were doing it. Um, and then even something with, OK, well, let's ask them to come on down and get onto a scale. It was so much easier with some of the other lemurs that were more comfortable coming down to the ground. The animals we were working with at the time weren't so sure about that. Um, and in time, when we built the trust, and that's really what training is completely about, is trust, then they started coming down and we could get some of them onto the scale. But definitely just physiologically, just behaviorally, they are so different. Um, and since that time till where you see what Jenna has done working with them, we've learned so much over the years. And I think we've all built on each other as to one technician learns this about them. And so now we have a much better understanding of them, which makes us better trainers. Because until you can really understand your animal, understand what works for them, that's the best way to set them up to succeed, which sets us up to succeed with our goals. And that's exactly what Jenna did um, working with Fadi. So Fadi arrived in 2019. So I've been her primary technician ever since she arrived. And we just started with the basics and we built up from that. And I found what was a high reinforcer, what she liked training, what she would train most for um, in her rewards. 
and kind of what made her tick and what she was willing to do, and we built on that. Experience with Fadi and her two subsequent births gave the team opportunities to study behavior throughout an II's life cycle. We'll start with the story of Fadi by looking at breeding. They can breed all year round, whereas other species have um, breeding seasons. In females, they enter estrus, and that happens about once a month, and we monitor them every day. We actually look at the female's vulva every day to see if there's any changes, physical changes in color and size when they're opening and ready for breeding. We don't see a whole lot of flirting or any social bonds between IIs. They are solitary creatures in the wild, and they only come together, a male and female will come together to mate. What are you looking for to make sure that everyone is relaxed and happy? For IIs, I would say being in the same space, and they're both relaxed. They don't do a whole lot of social grooming or sleeping together. We usually just being in the same area. They can eat. One of them is not trying to keep one out of the room or out of my space. That's something negative that we wouldn't want to see. The males are very forthcoming, I guess, when it's time to breed. They let the female know, and they will breed all night long. They actually have a very specialized way of breeding, which is really interesting, too, that they hang. And the female holds the male's weight behind her is a typical way that IIs would breed. Once the female is pregnant, the gestation period is 157 to 172 days. Okay, so that feels like a pretty average time for a lot of similar sized lemurs. I know lemurs have a huge variation, so we can go all the way up to the, what, like almost six months that a baby shafak takes to cook versus the like mm-hmm. couple of months that baby mouse lemurs do. <laughs> when they suspected Fadi was pregnant, they wanted to monitor her progress with ultrasounds, taking a look at the developing fetus. There really wasn't much known about I.I. development. I had not heard of anyone else working with I.I.s. Um, let alone housing IIs, really. It was just so rare. Um, so I don't know if I can 100% say we were the first, but there definitely had not been any uh, presentations at conference, anything in the literature, or anything that I had heard through colleagues. Um, so to my knowledge, I can at least say we were one of the very first, if not the first. And can you briefly describe the, the setup that is taking an ultrasound of an II and how that might look different from a human ultrasound? So IIs naturally hang upside down when they groom, eat. So that was the position. She's hanging upside down. We gave her a dowel to hold on to because her hands were wandering a little bit when I brought the ultrasound probe in with the cord. And we use baby food as the ultrasound gel. Especially because, of course, we all know lemurs groom better to have a tasty treat after getting your ultrasound. Like a lollipop at the end of your doctor visit. (laughs) There was a lot to learn in this process, like how to analyze images that were basically reversed. Palpations, or physical exams, where the veterinarian uses gloved hands to gently press on the abdomen to feel for the position and size of internal organs can help with this. This was all possible thanks to donors who funded the handheld ultrasound device they used, and because of the cooperation of Fadi. We got to see into what an II infant looks like in inside the womb, and it was all voluntary. Body was excited every week to do ultrasound, and we got images every week. Body's cooperation was critical because just like human mothers, stress in a pregnant female can absolutely cause issues. Um, we know as more research comes out, both on humans and other non-human primates, 
um, the effects of prenatal stress. And our goal is to reduce as much handling as possible. Um, sometimes we need to have animals in hand and our tech staff is highly trained for that. Um, and that's for the health of the animal, but anything we can do voluntarily, such as an ultrasound, um, and the fact that we could do it on a regular basis is where the direction of our program is going for sure. Fadi's firstborn, Winifred, unfortunately taught the team about how an animal could participate in their own health care at a very different time in their life. Winifred was only 10 months old when a sarcoma, a cancerous tumor that occurs in bones and soft tissues, was discovered in her right arm. Every day, she would be assessed by me on how the whole day went. Whenever I went in there, it was a scale, and I'd go through every behavior to assess how she was acting that day. The training sessions helped uh, monitor her, her mask size of it. So, and also built on the veterinary staff could be able to come in the room and assess her tumor as it grew and just monitor her without causing any extra stress or handling for her. And after months of collaboration with veterinary and human pediatric cancer specialist teams to debate any possible treatment options, the difficult decision was made to forego extreme interventions and monitor Winifred's quality of life very carefully. Just after her first birthday, Winifred's quality of life unfortunately took a sharp turn for the worse, and her care team made the extremely difficult decision to humanely euthanize her. The following winter of 2022, we celebrated... Baby Binks, who is currently taking social media by storm because he is in the arguably cutest phase of AI development, which is that a few months old where all the fur has come in, bright little eyes. Um, I actually got to see him for the first time just yesterday, uh, climbing around. So it's a really exciting time. So I'd love if you could just tell us a little bit about Binks and a little bit about all of the work that you put into making sure that Binks was nice and happy and healthy as he developed. Binks was born January 16th, 2022. But before then, we got a sneak peek of what he looked like on ultrasound. And every week, once a week after that, we monitored Binks' growth. One thing I did see with Body, she started nesting for several hours the night before she gave birth, and she went to bed really early. So I was like, mm, I think tonight's the night that she's going to give birth. And in the morning, they peeked in the nest, and they found an infant, a male, which was Binks. Growing up Binks, um, as you're watching him grow up, like what are what are the milestones you're looking for in an animal that is on their way to becoming a fully-fledged I.I.? Just a couple of days old, we'll see them in the nest tapping. So they come out, and they're ready to go, and <laughs> they're like already tapping. I gave Body a worm feeder the other day, and she was tapping. And Binks from across the room, he was tapping on the branch, and then his mouth just started chewing. He's just like, that's that's what I'm supposed to do. And chewing, 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 chewing. He's using his ears to listen in the branches and tapping, and he's just chewing on everything. Um, around five months, they start eating solid food. They're going to start following their mom around and become interested in what she's eating and kind of just sit under her and catch the little bits that she's eating any food. So they're going to try out the nuts and fruit and vegetables and worms like that. I think one of my favorite things about baby eyes is that I, they'll just snatch the food right out of mom's mouth. So how long is it typical for baby eyes to stay with their mom? At least two years. And what about mom? 
the team had a chance to compare how she parented Winifred and now Binks. With uh, Winifred, we were counting how many times Fadi was putting Winifred back in the nest. And, you know, it would be like she'd come out the nest and she'd go get Winifred. And I swear, Winifred would be like, Mom, I don't want to go back in the nest. And she put her back in the nest. And 30 seconds later, Winifred's coming out. And it just went on. And she hasn't done that with Binks, has she? Binks is her second. So she's just letting him do – she'll check in with him, but she's just letting him do whatever he wants. Let's him learn if he starts to fall down a branch and he catches himself. She'll go check and then she'll leave. So she's – Pretty offhand now. She's monitoring him, but she's doing her own thing. The team is waiting for the right time to resume Fadi's training and to involve Binks in that training. It's been shown now for quite several decades with all different species, you know, that learning from mom is just critical. It's just like kids, right? That what they see mom do, they're comfortable with. And we can use, use that to our advantage. So, for example, if Fadi, um, when Jenna's working on kennel training and Binks sees that, you know, the kennel doesn't become this scary thing. That's through experiences, right? So when Fadi's going in, Binks can follow. Uh, not yet. We're hoping that that's going to go that way. But that just sets Binks to be successful. Um, and it just makes our job of teaching him uh, how to interact with us and with his husbandry program just that much easier. And we start with point follows. And the point follow is when we say, we point our finger to a place and say, this is where I'd like you to go. And once they follow that place, then they get reinforced. So we'll start with that with things. Once he starts showing interest, and like I said, around five months old is when they start testing solid food. So six months and older is when we would start training with him. All he's doing right now is exploring in this room, which is so big to him, (laughs) and chewing on things because their incisors are continuously grown. So he's already chewing on things and is ready to be an eye-eye. We always ask those who know and love eye-eyes to tell us some of their favorite things about them. Actually, I think my favorite thing about them is their nest-building capabilities and how they can make these amazing nests overnight within just an hour or two. And they're going to build to that nest. In the wild, they'll build a nest one night and they'll go somewhere else and build another nest. And another eye will come up and follow up in some other eye's nest and build onto that. So that's super cool to me. Exactly how do they build these nests? Yeah, so they're going to gnaw off a piece of branch that they want to add to their nest with their teeth, and they'll bring it to the nest. And you'll see this huge piece of rouse going to, and favorites among the eye's here is bamboo and pine. And they'll go and they'll twist it, and it looks like a sideways bird nest. And they'll bring it and they'll use their hands and their mouth to twist it in a tightly wound nest and they'll just keep adding and adding and at some point some nests you can't even see the opening of it because they've added so much to it and closed the opening so they're inside they're in this tightly wound nest with brows. Baby eye eyes will learn nest building. We've seen good nest builders with good nest building moms. And I feel like around age one is like when they start contributing to the nest and they start getting it by watching their mom. And body makes huge ones. But not every eye-eye gets that into nest building. The one thing I love um, about an eye-eye who is here, his name is Grendel, 
It is the opposite of Fadi, who makes these beautiful nests where uh, Grendel's kind of a bachelor. He just needs his nest box and a piece of fleece. But the great thing about Grendel is every night, like clockwork, he gets a piece of fleece and he's able, he holds like a corner of it with a hand and then he puts his head around it like a scarf and then he enters into his nest box and he does that routinely. And sometimes he doesn't like it. So you see him pull it out, drop it, go down and get it. And he might do it again until he gets that fleece just right. And it's, it's fabulous. So fun to watch. Yeah. <laughs> Very particular. We actually, I once went in when Grendel poked his head out when lights were still on. Um, and he had just this mustard yellow fleece, like a very, like, well-dressed gentleman poking his head out. An I.I. cravat. That's, that's really amazing. Thanks so much to Meg and Jennifer joining us to discuss I.I. behavior and the DLC's animal welfare program. Thanks for joining us on this Duke Lemur Center journey. Subscribe and discover more episodes each season. We look forward to sharing more about the Duke Lemur Center with you soon. And in the meantime, follow us on social media and visit us at lemur.duke.edu. A special thanks to Julie Bortz, who edited this episode. And thank you, and goodbye for now. From Matt and Megan and all the primates at the Duke Lemur Center. <laughs>